RadioInfluence.com. You are sitting ringside with David Penzer on Radio Influence. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another edition of Sitting Ringside. My name is David Penzer. We are so happy, as always, to have you here to listen to this thing we call a podcast. And ladies and gentlemen, we are getting close to what I'm calling the Wednesday Night Wars. Two days away. Two days away when this drops. And it will be All Elite Wrestling, which we'll talk about a little bit later. And going head-to-head on USA with... NXT for two hours, TNT versus USA, NXT versus AEW. So strap on your seatbelt. And uh, next week, we are planning, and uh, just confirming the time, we are planning on having Dave Meltzer here to break down the first week of the quote-unquote Wednesday Wednesday Night Wars, uh, the numbers, what they mean, uh, what he thought of the shows, and uh, what he thinks uh, the future lies in this business. So, Excited about that to speak to somebody who's been writing and uh, studying this business for almost for longer than I've been in it. So, and I've been in it a long time. Uh, so, looking forward to that. Hopefully, you tune in. If you have any questions for Dave, you could uh, hit me up on Twitter at David Penzer or at Penzer Ringside. Love to have you on Twitter. This week, uh, we will continue with our Whatever Happened to dot dot dot, which I found out today is called an ellipsis. If you knew that, tweet me, and I'll congratulate you because 53 years old, I had never heard of an ellipsis. To me, it was a dot, dot, dot. But um, So whatever happened to ellipsis, and we're going to welcome an old friend and somebody who walked away from the business uh, on his own. We're going to find out why and what he is up to now and talk about his career. I'm talking about the one and only one half of the American male, Scotty Riggs. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome. We're going to find out whatever happened to one half WCW World Tag Team Champions, the American Males. My guest this week, Scotty Riggs. All right, ladies and gentlemen, as you know, we have been doing an ongoing series. Whatever happened to dot, dot, dot. I found out it's called an ellipsis. Did you know, Scotty, that this, that dot, dot, dot is called an ellipsis? I actually heard that today. Yeah. On, uh, what I, the news. It's what I learned on the news today. Uh, yeah, exactly. That's all that happens is I learned that it's an ellipsis. So uh, whatever happened to and uh want to welcome my guest. We already talked to him, just uh, piped in. Uh, Scotty Riggs. And the reason for um, the series, whatever happened to, is there's very few people in this business that walk away on their own volition. Uh, hell, I got a podcast all these years later. So uh, to do that, uh, until, and you know, especially after the uh, intoxication that is professional wrestling and the roar of the crowd is really tough. So I wanted to, uh, to hear your story and see what you're doing now. But uh, we're going to start from the beginning, obviously, as we like to do. Um, well, well, I don't want to interrupt you, but no, interrupt. to start from the beginning, hearing your voice everything else, and you said, Scotty Riggs, I was waiting for the American males <laughs> to come out of your voice. That's normally after I hear Marcus Bagwell and Scotty Riggs, it would be that long, drawn out, the American males with your voice. So I was kind of waiting for that. I was kind of going, okay, bring it out, David. <laughs> I was... But, uh, uh, I was, I was, I'm, actually, wait, I'm kind of waiting for it, you know? Uh, no, I can't. 
Um, I was actually doing some research on on you guys today and uh, and watched a couple matches, and I noticed that I paused between American and males, and it was I don't know I thought it was kind of awkward, but uh, I guess at the time it worked. Um, I actually, as, as goofy as it sounds, uh, I, I found myself on YouTube. I, I've never I haven't watched any of my matches in probably ten years, and just found myself um, scrolling. Through, I, I opened up a, an old YouTube uh, thing. With a, with you know, with an email account, that looked at anything a long time. And I actually watched the first match ever had uh, with me and Marcus against the Blue Bloods, Regal and Eaton, and that was the match that actually got me hired. Wow. I was sitting back going, I was just watching again, going, wow. I mean, it was down in Orlando, and I was sitting back going, just, just incredible how Bobby Eaton and Regal made me look like a ten-year veteran. I'd only been in the business. I started in '93, left. Uh, Arn Anderson gave me advice to leave the company around 94-ish to go get some experience and exposure. He said, things are changing here in the company. You're going to get stuck at one position. He goes, Bischoff is taking over. You need to get out of here because you got a good look and everything else. So basically, I left. Spent a year and a half, or probably eight months, actually, in Memphis wrestling, six, seven nights a week. And when I came back to be back with partner, I had only about two, two and a half years to three years experience. And just watching that match, I was sitting back going, man, Regal and Eaton knew how to make what strengths I had look even better. Yeah, and that were, match got me hired. They were two of the best. They got a lot of people hired. Bobby Eaton got a lot of people hired. Uh, yeah, and, and then the, the, what, what I was going to pop on next was the sec- next match I watched um, was uh, me and Marcus against uh, High Voltage. Nick Patrick was a referee, and I dislocated my shoulder um, about two minutes into the match. But uh, the the one thing, again, I was going to pop on was I can remember now that you did pause between American and males. and But it seemed so fluid, though. <laughs> as cheesy as it was, you, 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 it didn't seem like you were doing it. It didn't seem awkward to me. But now that I've um, had those two matches in my mind, I can think, yeah, I can hear you doing that now, which is kind of cool because it did make, it did give a distinction to us, you know. Well, the whole thing was cheesy, and we're going to talk about it. Uh, hey, um, um, you mentioned uh, Memphis, USWA. Uh, that was uh, you were there towards the end of uh, really what the territorial system was, the last of the territories, and then in '94, yeah. T- talk to me about that because by that time, I know the houses weren't that great, and I know the pay must not have been good. I've heard stories about guys living out of their cars back just to get experience, you know, to be able to work every night. Uh, Tell me about going there and uh, what you learned and, and how it was. I mean, well, pretty much uh, the whole scenario started with Arn Anderson uh, at center stage. Again, I kind of uh, said something about it. Was He pulled me aside and said, Scotty, he goes, you got a great look. You got a good ability. You're a good-looking kid. Uh, you, you don't get into the, you know, the crap hole that's going around. And you can work. He goes, you just need to get some experience. If you don't get out of here, you're going to get stuck in under the glass ceiling sure. and you got potential. So long story short, around Thanksgiving, I was working a show with Jake Disney Roberts, right with me. I drove Jake, sorry. He didn't ride with me. I drove him. <laughs> um, and Jerry Lawler was on the show too. And I don't know if you remember Robbie Eagle, who did the Gordon George, the Maestro gimmick. Yeah, I know. That's oh, where yeah. I wrestled. Yeah, that's, that's where I wrestled on the show. Oh, God bless you. And um, so we wrestled a match. We, were, we wrestled each other a few times before. So we were kind of familiar with each other and had a really good, solid match. 
right after the show, Jerry Lawler pulled me aside and Jacob buzzed him to watch it. And basically from our letters to the vice, Jake, the snakes, you know, props, Jerry, Jerry offered me a spot to come in in January of that year of 95. He goes, I can't promise you anything but 40 bucks a night, but you can get you an experience and exposure because you're wrestle six nights a week, twice on Saturday. And it was basically, uh, it was probably, that's what premier prepared me the most for being at least a great mechanic in the ring. I didn't get to do a heck of a lot of promos because, as you know, I didn't do any many promos at all in WCW because I sucked at it. But um, it was just something I really had a chance to work on. But I could call a match. I could work a match. I could work with anybody. And the one thing about working in a territory, when you work Memphis on Monday, Louisville Tuesday, Evansville Wednesday, Spot Show Thursday, Friday, Memphis TV Saturday morning, and Nashville Saturday night, when you work that routine, that schedule six nights a week, you got to come up with creative stuff. If you wrestle the same guy two, three weeks in a row, if you're doing a little bit of an angle, if you wrestle different people, you got to start matches differently, psychology differently. And those fans are, know they're wrestling. So it made you be creative. It made you think, it made you think off your feet. It made you think is, you know, um, what make a match work, how to listen to a crowd, how to listen to what is working, what sucks, what they are popping for, what makes them go up and down the roller coaster ride. And that really prepared me for being able to come into WCW. That eight months I spent there, again, 40 bucks a night, 20 bucks for a hotel, 10 bucks for gas. Gas was cheap back then, 10 bucks for, for food. That was pretty much a Subway sandwich. Um, get a foot long, eat half for lunch, half for dinner. Then on the way home, with a ridiculous gimmick sales, eat a Waffle House. So, but that was the one thing that, you know, a lot of guys nowadays, say going to the performance center and, and, and getting paid to travel or not have to travel, but getting paid to train and learn your craft or anything else is paying your dues. Not really. <laughs> not until you have to go to Memphis and, and really starve. And that's what, and, your car. and that's what I wanted to ask you about it. Cause I know I've heard stories and I, and I know the time that you were there. And like you said, $40 a night. And if you sold a couple of gimmicks, you know, you might've had uh, been able to buy a six pack. Uh, and the other thing about well, Memphis, the, the one cool thing, go ahead. the one cool thing that was there was there were there were the, the I don't know what I call them, but there were ladies that were there, older ladies that helped guys sell gimmicks, pictures, and they would they would recycle your your pictures to make keychains and do stuff for. You. They would go to a dollar store, buy a ton of stuff and just make stuff for you. And they would actually sell it for you because they knew they'd been there forever, and they knew a lot of the boys their gimmick sales what actually fed them. Sure. So that helped there. And that actually helped, you know, you, you make your 40 bucks at night and you get another 40, 50 bucks um, from gimmick sales. And it's two bucks here for a picture, $3 for a keychain, stuff like that. You do survive, but it's, you know, it takes other people working with you in a sense to do well. And I did get to move up a few times up on the card where I wasn't just the first, second or third match. I worked a, a little bit of a, uh, a two week thing with, with Brian Lee for the, uh, their heavyweight title thing where I win a battle Royal and then face Brian, um, in like the main event of the night and actually got a couple hundred dollar, uh, paydays for that, oh, wow. you know, in my paycheck. Cause every two weeks you'd also get a paycheck. Right. And so, you know, if you were on a third on the card, you get an extra 20, 30 bucks if the house was good. If you open a match, you get another 15, 20 bucks. Good. And when I was there, they were really selling out houses and make good money. But like you said, towards the end of it, around that August of 95, when I left and went to WCW, 
is when they really did. They were they were doing stuff with Smoky Mountain, and both those companies are really starting to struggle. Right. You talk about um, having to change things up uh, because you're doing the same wrestling, the same people uh, week after week and the the fans come every week. The other thing about Memphis that I didn't know for the longest time is whatever you do Monday, whatever you tape Saturday and you do on Monday is a week behind everything else. Was it that way when you were there? So so you if, if you turn heel on Saturday in the studio and, it, and and they watched it in Memphis. Then you were a heel on Monday night in Memphis, but then they bicycled the tapes a week late to all the other towns. So you were back to being babyface Scott Studd feuding with Brian Lee, even though you had cut a totally different angle. And you had to remember all that. That's not the easiest so have, thing in the well, world. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, Saturday morning live TV in Memphis on Channel 5. Uh, if, you, if I was a bad guy then, or if I turned it was a bad guy then, Saturday night in Nashville, I had to be a good guy wrestling Brian Lee. Sure. Monday, Monday in Memphis, I was bad guy again. Tuesday in Louisville, Wednesday in Evansville, I was good guy again. Thursday, Friday, I was in Spot Town, I was a good guy. Back to Saturday morning, I would be a bad guy again. And then Saturday night, I could be a bad guy again. So, yeah, you had to be up to date in what you were doing and how to respond to the people. And some of the people knew what was going on. You know, some people traveled to those shows, but they really didn't act like they were smart to everything. That was one of the things about it. And the fans kind of knew stuff that was going on, but they didn't overact it to you. They were they got into the show, which was cool. You know, when, when you have fans, you actually get into what's going on and to what you're trying to suspend their disbelief on, and they get involved in it emotionally. It's cool. Yeah, and, and I'm surprised they were able to keep kayfabe as good as they were uh, back in the day because uh, you'd think that people get smart to that. And I'm like you said, I'm sure there were some people that were and kind of went along with it because they, you know, probably the same ladies that helped to sell um, the gimmicks and all that, you know, that, that that felt like they were part of the family or, you know, a, a part of it. Hey, um, well, the, you, go ahead. No, I'll say the, the thing is there, they, when I went there, Tommy Rich is what the only guy that I knew there one-on-one from other shows. When, and when I watched in, the, in the, the Memphis TV that morning, Tommy was like, oh, I heard you come in, brother, you know, and everything else. It was good this, good that. It was, and he goes, I would love you to travel with me because I want to catch up, but I'm a bad guy here. We can't do that here. But I'm going to have this. I'm going to get uh, Jamie Dundee and Wolf at the top of it just so you can get used to everything because they've been there a while and they could use the ride anyway because they know you have the car. And so basically, you know, Tommy smart me up. You can't ride with bad guys here. They don't, they don't do that. You don't, you know, if you're buddies with everybody, you don't travel together. And then I ended up, uh, after a few months, I started riding with Brian Christopher and me and Brian were working out together, traveling together and everything else. A few other times here, there were the people, but, um, but they, they definitely kept it kayfabe there. They definitely kept everybody separated. They didn't let the fans see you traveling together. They didn't want y'all doing that. So that's what that's that kind of kept the veil of what was going on, which was kind of cool. Yeah, old school. Uh, lo- love old mm-hmm, school definitely. stuff. Hey, that's you how mentioned they made their money, brother. Yes, sir. You mentioned that um, that you got some advice from Arn Anderson. I'm wondering, did Arn just take a liking to you just uh, for no reason, or did you guys uh, be able to bond because you got in common the same teacher who was uh, Ted Allen, the Nightmare? Well, I mean. I- I'm trying to, I can't really answer for Arn if he just took a liking to me or not. I just remember back then I was just, again, 
Scott said I was, I got a, a spot doing TVs from Jody Hamilton right. with DDP taking me down to the power plant. Um, to make it even kind of a longer story longer, uh, me and DDP had met at Main Event Fitness. We had a ring down at uh, in front of us karate school. So DDP came down there, used me as a punching bag for a while to learn moves with, with Brad Armstrong, Jake, and Steve Regal. So we all got to work to each other and stuff like that. And I learned stuff through being a punching bag for DDP. And then we went, put a match together and showed it off for Jody. And that's what got me my end there. And I, I don't know if, if Arn even knew that Ted Allen trained me, but Ted was the same type of thing of training old school where he taught me everything in the ring. We never talked about anything. We were in separate dressing rooms on most of the shows anyway back then. And, but we never discussed anything except for on the way home, I would always ride with him, help him set up the ring. If we'd have to get there hours early to set up the ring in the building, I'd help him set up the ring. It was part of me paying my dues. And then we go into separate dressing rooms and we would never talk about anything. Get in the ring. He would call the entire match in the ring. If we did something good, he'd sit there and he wore a mask so he could talk to me easily. And he'd go, dude, you hear the crowd reacting? Remember that reaction. Remember what we did. And he'd always go, listen to the crowd, listen to the crowd. That didn't work, did it? That sucked. Let's not do it again. And he would just openly talk to me. Just listen to this, listen to that. Let's do this, let's do this. That didn't work, did it? Let's do this. And we go through a 15, 20 minute match with him just training me in the ring. That's amazing. That's amazing. And, and that's, I, I think that's kind of how we taught Arn. That's why Arn was so good, you know, in one sense. Other than Arn, Arn just it came to him naturally, I think, just because it was something that was ingrained in him. He had that it factor when he came to wrestling. For sure. So and that, yeah, that's how, that's how I got trained. It was in the ring in front of a live crowd, and or, or not Arn, but Ted basically said, Listen, listen to the crowd. This is what we're going to do. Let's see how the crowd reacts. That's, you know, and, and he would, and then when we got into the, into the, uh, going home, heard the ring down and on the way home, he go, okay, and be blah, 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 this. He goes, you did this good. You did that bad. You need to work on this. He'd be a little bit quicker reacting to here. You need to slow down there. And then it'd be quiz time about, you know, listening to what the mechanics of a match were and how to get the crowd to react to you and how to, Take the crowd on the roller coaster ride with you. Sure, I hate so, to. So again, I don't know if Orange took a like to me because of, uh, I really don't know why. I just think he saw me and he he like a young kid, and I think I asked him. I, I used to always ask him a question. You know, I'm working with this guy. How can I do something to really make the match better? And I would always ask him something here or there, without being obnoxious about it. And I think that's why it kind of took a like to me. I don't really think it was any more of anything else. It's just I can recall that one day he just pulled me aside and said, you need to get out of here. You know, I hate to sound like one of these old uh, wrestling people, you know, but what you're talking about, calling in the ring and and learning from from what worked and what didn't is really a lost art. Um, Recently, uh, a couple years ago, when Impact Wrestling got sold to Anthem Media, uh, they called me back to do some ring announcing in Orlando for them again. And... I went in there and I was watching, sitting in the uh, impact zone during the afternoon and every single match was in the ring going over spot for spot for spot for spot. And I pulled over one of their executives. I don't want to bury him, uh, but as a friend of mine, and I said, does anybody call a match in the ring anymore? And he looked at me, he said, yeah, Alberto Del Rio, he's the only one. And Mm -hmm. uh, so, I mean, it's a whole, I'm not saying that, you know, look, 
I obviously think it was better the old way. But, you know, look, things change and, and it's a new era and, and that's fine. But the it's, only thing, yeah, the only thing I say that's different with today's wrestling is it's definitely more TV oriented and you only have six to seven minutes to sometimes being able to get an angle over or a match over or even less time than that sometimes. Sure. And you got to do certain things. And if you don't wrestle somebody on a consistent basis and you're not trained that way to do it, you can't do it. And some of these guys today, they know that they have to be constant motion because it's on TV and the way the fans have been educated, this is what wrestling is supposed to be. It's supposed to be constant fluid motion. If you grab a hold, it's a rest hold. It's a bad thing. God forbid. It's a psychology thing, you know? Yeah. God forbid God they chant boring. Psychology. Well, God, God, uh, I can remember a match you had with Mikey Ripwreck at Spring uh, Stampede 99. We were the fourth match is a popcorn match for sure. You know, you know, some people get popcorn and use the restroom. No angle, no issue. Every other match before us had something. Uh, Hooventude and Blitzkrieg had this high-flying crazy match. Uh, Hack and, and Brian Knobs had a hardcore match. And there was somebody else before us. And then we went out there and we were just a cold, dead match. We had to kind of get over a new persona they had with the mirror thing they wanted me to do. And towards the end of the match, the crowd were good, you know, chatting boring. And I dropped down and grabbed Mikey in a, in a headlock. And Mikey said, it's kept. And I said, no, I'm, we're not doing anything. I'm not letting these people dictate what we're doing. <laughs> and Mikey goes, wow, you're right. And we sat there in a the headlock for about a good 15, 20 seconds, let the crowd get out of the thing. I sat there and I kind of looked around. I remember looking around going, okay, are y'all done? And then we kind of went to some other things and we went towards the finish. And I do remember Horace Hogan, Horace Boulder, whatever you want to call him, cut me afterwards. He goes, dude, I was in Holster's dressing room. And they were watching the match, and they they were like, "Man, I can't believe these crowds are booing these two guys. They're doing some good stuff, but they're 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 getting boring." And he goes, "When Riggs dropped down and grabbed that that rear chin lock, he goes, that kid knows what he's doing." So he goes, "Holster said this about you, man." I was like, "Really?" And but you know the thing is, an old school guy, and it sounds like a holster is he he knows what it was. When you're when you're working, you don't let the crowd dictate to you what you're doing. You got to manipulate them. Don't let them manipulate you. And that's the psychology of it. You yep. got to take them on the ride. Tremendous. Not let them make you work for them. Tremendous point. Tremendous point, actually. And, uh, and yeah, and they will. If the those that like you that had the guts to drop, to drop down and say, you know what? Chant whatever you want, but I'm going to do what I'm going to do and put on the show I'm going to show. I'm put on. They, the, the fans do get with it after a while, you know, because. Uh, you know, exactly. I mean, I, I knew how to, I knew if I were to went in to do something more, because the fans were getting smarter at that time in one sense, you know. I knew if I would have had panicked and went to judge, we got to do this, we do that, do this, and started running around doing some stuff, the fans knew that they would have, they controlled me. But I knew if I was sat down and let them just chant and get the warning out of their, out of their, you know, out of their system. I was going. To, I, I was going to get them back the way I wanted to, not the way they thought I had to. That's you great. Know, I was in control of the match, yeah. you know. And, and Mikey understood that at, at when I he first said, "Let's do something." I'm like, no, let's sit here a minute. We're okay. We got time. And then he understood what was going on. And Mikey went, "You know, you're right. Let's not let them do the thing." That's what we talked about afterwards. Like the fans don't control you. You're supposed to control the fans. Great stuff, man. I knew you'd be a great guest on the, on the podcast. Hey, um, so you, you got, you went to Memphis, you came back, you got the gig with WCW working with Regal and Bobby Eaton, uh, in, I guess the tryout match. Um, 
Who helped you get back in? I'm assuming DDP and some of those guys. Um, no, DDP didn't have anything to do with it. To be honest with you, um, I'm trying to think even how I got into the mix for. Uh, I don't remember if you remember Kemper Rogers. He did some of the production and editing sure. shows and stuff like that. Um, God, that's Kemper a name. Has, that's a blast from the past. Name. Yeah, I know for real, isn't it? But Kemper did was was trying to. I guess get out of just doing the, the WCW production and stuff like that. And he went was doing some music videos and he had got in touch with me in Memphis. And I don't know how he knew I was there, but he, he got in touch with me in Louisville, Kentucky at the days Inn where we always stayed. I got a call from, uh, from him. Basically he wanted me to come to shoot a music video with Bagwell and this girl. And to make a long story short, I, flew, I went into Atlanta to the music video over the weekend, went back to Memphis, no big deal. And while he was using the uh, TBS studio, I guess, to edit his video, Jimmy Hart walked in and saw the video when I'm doing the work. It was a black and white video with me and Marcus. And Marcus was tagging with uh, Alex Wright at the time, doing a, a USA-Germany connection type thing. I don't know if you remember that, but it didn't last long, but... Um, Jimmy Hart walked in, was looking at it, going, hey, what are you doing? Who's that guy? He goes, oh, that's Scott Reese. He goes, oh, he's in Memphis right now. But I was Scott Stead at the time. He's in Memphis, isn't he? He goes, yeah. And the next thing I know, swear to God, about two, three weeks after that, I get this call, and it's Janie Ingle. Sure. Calling me at the Days Inn in Louisville, going, Kevin Sullivan is wanting to bring you in to be Bagwell's partner. So it was more Jimmy Hart seeing that music video that brought me the chance to come back in. He's told and me then, that he's told me the story a couple of times. I knew I knew that American Males was a Jimmy Hart project, just like uh, Three Count, and he 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 has he he finds I, I'm, Jimmy's a good friend of mine, and um, uh, we've stayed in touch pretty close over the years. And he he finds certain talent that he fixates on for whatever reason and goes all in on them. Well, and he was all in on you guys. Thought, well, yeah, well, me and Marcus, you saw the fabulous ones, you know, from the from the USWA Memphis area. Fantastics, you know that type of sure. that type tag team, you know that that young two young good looking guys could be cheesy and it, when when they brought me in, I remember it was it took about three weeks of phone calls every Tuesday or actually Wednesday morning because it was um, when we were getting ready to leave to go to Evansville. But um, Janie would call and go, "Okay, Kevin wants to do this." Blah blah blah. We talked about it. I'm gonna call you back next week with more details. Okay. Next we can call back. I, you know, I told her basically, I said, I'm starving here to make no money. Can you get me some type of guarantee? And she said, okay, let me talk to Kevin. I'll get back to you. The next week, okay, here's what we got to. We got an X amount of dollars and a little bit of a guarantee for you. It's going to be a nine-day tryout. Bring you in to be Bagwell's partner. I need to be in here. You need to see Marcus on Friday of this coming weekend. It's Wednesday. And so I've got basically a day to wrestle that night in, in, in Evansville, um, and then basically drive to Atlanta on Thursday, meet up with Bagwell Friday, put together some outfits, and Monday we're to be in Orlando for two weeks of TV tapings. That's how, that's how boom, three weeks, once a week phone call, next thing you know, I'm Marcus's, bag, Marcus's partner. And I'm trying to think if that was actually our, our first match or if we had a, like a tune-up match. But that was the first match of any meaning to it that we worked with somebody that uh, definitely should have beat us. You know what I'm saying? Real sure. hating, but we don't overrun them. And it was after that match, uh, I can't remember. We went to the back. Jimmy Hart comes running up. 
God, that was great. That was a great match. Okay, tomorrow you got no matches, but what we're going to do is we're going to go out here. We got horses. We have, you know, we'll get some video stuff on you. Um, you know, and, and he put this whole thing together within oh. after one match. Within, I guess it the the, the prior match. I can't remember if it was a, what it was, but who we worked. But they got an idea we were going to work together. We had a chemistry, and that's the weird thing. Me and Marcus knew each other, never worked before, never hung out or anything, but had an instant chemistry where we could read each other what we wanted to do in the ring. It was weird. It was one of those things that just happened. And we worked with Eagle and Reeton. They made me like a 10-year vet superstar should be in a main event match. It's how good they were and how good they made me look. And the next thing I knew, we, were, we, we shot this video stuff and everything with, with horses, just like the, the old Fabulous ones, the fantastic stuff they did in Memphis. Shirts off, sweaty, hair, whole nine yards. I remember. On. And that video never saw the light of the day. They never used it. It cost like 80 grand to make. It took a couple of days of shooting. And that was pretty much my start. And then my 90-day my trial, I, we were two weeks later or three weeks later, we were World Tag Team Champs. <laughs> so 90-day trial, I was already World Tag Team Champion. What'd you think? Of, what'd you think of the song? Uh, well, well I, um, and and let's 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 specify let, let's stipulate that it was Jimmy Hart uh, com- composition, and, oh, yeah. uh, and and I mean you would probably owe a lot of the success, original success in WCW to Jimmy Hart. He's a great friend of mine, but I mean I don't think that anybody would be um, would be off kilter by saying the song was kind of corny. Um, just wondering what. Is, you, I'll, 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 hey, I'll put it to you like this: Jimmy brought us back there um, before our first match. Again, I can't remember if it was Eagle and Reed or those guys, but he goes, "Here's your ring music," and it, and it starts out that yeah, yeah. Me and Margaret talking each other, going, "Yeah, okay, cool." Then <laughs> you know, and then it went American males, and Jimmy's going, "Yeah, brother, you hear that? It's got a Devo tint to it. It's got that." And I can remember with that first American Males, that Devo sound to it, me and Margaret just looked each other, our mouths hung open. I can remember it's like a slow motion. When you look at somebody like, oh, my God. And we looked at each other, and then we looked back at Jimmy, and Jimmy's all excited. So we just went, yeah, you know, both <laughs> at the same time. And I'll tell you, as cheesy as it was, that song, 24 years later, I get more stuff on. I get more heat, but more pops. Anytime some I post something with the American Males on there, and people twenty four years later, either they have a love hate relationship with that song. It has lasted. And yeah, Jimmy. Jimmy writes some was, catchy because stuff. Because it was corny. Yeah. Because it was whatever you wanted to put it, however you wanted to view it, it caught on. People hated it. They loved it. If we would have been heels, that song would have been. I mean, we would have been booed out of the building because of that song. But for some reason, it, it, it caught on. And, dude, I mean, I, I, I loved it kind of then. I love it even more now. I loved it kind of then. But I love it more now because people still, fans 20 years later, still react to it. So now, then they say when you, when you play it backwards, it says, slam your grandma. <laughs> I mean, that's YouTube it, dude. I'm telling you, you get a great laugh on it. it yeah, it does. I mean, it, it, uh, I'm trying to think how to, how to YouTube it up, but just say American Male play back, play backwards or whatever how you do it. It says, slam your grandma, slam your grandma. I'm like, wow, it does. Now, I have, a, evil, now I have a project. It's, it's fun. 
See that Jimmy, Jimmy always throws something sinister in there. Hey, the thing is, and this wasn't a Jimmy song I'm about to trounce, but the thing is, no matter how corny was that, it was still better than Sting's song at the time. He does this, he does that. Who writes uh, that for, uh, for Sting? I'll, I'll never get over we, that. We used to give, um, when, when Sting would have a good shot on the golf course, we would go, <laughs> one of us, here, Marcus, he does this, he does that. <laughs> you know, and, and Sting would look at us and go, F you guys, you know, <laughs> and we would just razz him about it because it was only one of the few ribs you could pull on him that it would work. And then we all, we'd also call him him. You know, it wasn't Sting, he wasn't Steve, he was him. <laughs> him just had a good shot, you know, and so there's little ribs we we use them and his own music on him at the time. We would use that on him and it'd be funny. <laughs> but yeah, the, the thing that at the time, the 90s, that was what the music was, you know, sure. and it is what it is, and the thing is that that stuff still sticks. It's it's in your mind. You know, the wrestling business around that time was changing, and you know, the fabulous ones and 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 the fantastics and that kind of stuff uh, really wasn't as as over as it used to be. People were starting to get quote unquote an attitude. Uh, the fans, uh, partly because of the NWO and and the stuff that we were doing, and I thought, and I've been waiting to ask you this question for about twenty years, but I, I thought that. At, at 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 some point, probably about six months into you guys' tag team run, would have been per. I mean, it would have been perfect in my opinion. No brainer to turn you guys heel, cocky with that with that annoying music, cocky heels with a you know, like you said, like like they they tried to may have you do with the mirror and full of yourselves. Did you guys ever pitch that? And 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 why didn't it happen? It still seems like a no brainer. Well, I mean. At the, the, the time, if you looked at, we were the only sure white, you know, white bread, baby faces, however you want to put it. You know, we were just that. We weren't corny. We were cheesy. Let me get that. You know, we, it wasn't easy being that cheesy. You sure. know, we were never corny. It was cheesy. You keep saying corny. You're right. Cheesy. Get it right, David. Got, got but, it. Cheesy. But the thing is, is we were the only baby face tag team. You had Dick and Buck, who were, you know, two heels, Harlem Heat heels, Nasty Boys heels. State Patrol heels, Minute Work heels. By God, we were the only babyface tag team that they had, <laughs> you know, and, and they could kind of work the nasties in there if they needed to to work against Heat or Dick and Buck to be heels or be, be faces. But we were the only legit face team there was in, in WCW at the time. And then they brought the Road Warriors in. The Steiners came in. Uh, Holland Nash came as a tag team. And Barry Ming came along. So it was kind of like we were still the only babyface tag team. The Rugo brothers came in. They didn't bring anybody else in to be faces, you know, and we were stuck in that position. But there was one match we did on Saturday night where uh, we were supposed to wrestle Dick and Buck. For some reason, Buck didn't make it. We were, I think it was Gainesville, Georgia, of all places, too. Because I can remember the building, it darkened a lot. But the crowd wasn't great because it was Saturday night taping. But um, it was a decent crowd, but Dick had to work this by himself. And Parker was out there with them, and Dick would work us and bounce us around a little bit. And we were working a little bit heel, just a tad bit. And Dick would, you know, bounce us around. We'd stop him a little bit, do a double-team thing. Then he cut us off. and But he started acting like he was getting wore out, tired. He'd fall out of the ring, and Parker would kind of fan him, you know, get back in there, get back in there. And then finally... You know, they push him back in and Dick is like playing like he's exhausted. He has no more to move. And me and Mark just looked at each other. We raised his hand, looked at the crowd, pointed to him, and we double gut punched him, double booted him, 
double punched him and shot him off the rope. He went double elbow, shot him off the rope, double drop kicked him. And we popped it and went, ha, ha, ha. And people were like, the crowd was like silent because they didn't expect that from us. And that would have been like the perfect, from that point on, if we could have been heels, it would have been phenomenal. And we were in turned heel by Dick Slater of all people. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Um, talk about talk about a master heel. of his craft. Yeah, I oh, must dude, have seen that. I must, I must have been there because I, I thought that at one point they teased the heel turn. And then I, I was looking into the, you know, when I was looking at the videos and stuff in your history and I couldn't find it. Uh, so I thought I was crazy, but yeah, I thought they teased it. Did you guys ever make a, did you guys ever make a push to go heel or, or just never went anywhere? We, we never, I mean, we kind of mentioned it after that, but it, it never went anywhere. They, they, they needed us to be a, you know, a solid good guy team that could put over the heels, <laughs> you know, that's what they needed from us at the time. And we could go on the house shows and have 20, 25 minute tag matches with other, you know, with either heat or Dick and Buck, whatever. And they needed that from, you know, they needed a good guy team. Sure. We just happened to be that. They didn't have everybody else to be a, a face of maybe Steiner's Sting and Lex. They put together, you know, and put the straps on them. And so it was just that point in time where we, we were stuck being, a, you know, we would have been excellent heels, but we were stuck as faces, man. So as this podcast drops on Monday, September 30th, we are two days away from the debut of a new league, All Elite Wrestling premiering Wednesday, October 2nd on TNT. And I was thinking about the first Nitro and what everybody was thinking, how nervous people were. We were at the Mall of the America, of course, and we didn't really know what we had in store for us moving forward. We knew it was an exciting opportunity, uh, but the future was unknown. We went out, had a great crowd, had a great show. Lex Luger walked out, who was at that point signed by WWE, or so we thought, and then a few months later, Scott Hall walked down the steps in Macon, Georgia. And ladies and gentlemen, Monday Night Show, back then, 25 years ago, started a revolution. And now 25 years later, this Wednesday, October 2nd on TNT, a new revolution, a new league. Get ready for the revolution with all elite wrestling. It's the most exciting professional wrestling in the last decade made for wrestling fans by the wrestlers themselves. And that is True. AEW flies higher, hits harder, and with their all-inclusive roster of superstars, they're breaking boundaries. Chris Jericho, Cody and Brandy Rhodes, the Young Bucks, Nyla Rose, and more. All Elite Wrestling, a new league rises. I am excited. We've been talking about it for a long time, and it's finally here this Wednesday, October 2nd on TNT. Get ready for the revolution. Get ready for the debut. A new league rises, All Elite Wrestling. So I know that um, that you were at that time or shortly thereafter, you were riding with, you had mentioned playing golf with Sting. You're riding with a lot with Sting and Luger and Buff. Uh, how did you, I know Buff was your tag team partner and I know he was friends, friendly with Sting and Luger. Uh, how was that uh, as far as them welcoming you in? Sting probably didn't say three words other than, hey, how you doing? Welcome. Uh, do you drive? But, um, but you know, Luger at the no. time. No, he didn't. He didn't. He didn't. Well, the, the weird part about the entire thing with those guys was, you know, we did that first nitro in Minneapolis, you know, to Mall of America. Right. And they flew us all in there. And me and Marcus, you know, Stinger had already gone to the building or to the, the Marriott stuff, whatever. We're, that was where we're staying at. And I was staying with Marcus. And again, I didn't know the road that well. And they had a lot of money well me at the time. 
So basically, you know, Marcus was getting the cars and I w- we would drive and Marcus and Stinger were friends. Right. And so, you know, they've been traveling together, working out together, whatever before. And so they, they knew each other from the road and everything together. So I come in as Marcus's partner. I don't have anybody to travel with. I get no a lot of money. So Marcus says, you know, we'll travel together. And so when Lex comes in, Lex is staying, pick up, you know, with their friendship, which is genuine friendship. They've known each other for years. And here's one funny story. I don't know if you know this to cut off real quick into another little thing here. When I was in Memphis, they used to take us up and do a few TV shots for WWF to do some enhancement work, get an extra little payday, an extra, you know, two, 200 bucks each day to do stuff for them. Right. And the first day they brought me in there, I did a thing with Lex. It says flag bearer. When they were doing that All-American, that Lex. Right, thing. right. They, had, they, need, they needed somebody who was wrestling Yokozuna on Raw, and they needed a, a, one of the boys to be a flag bearer for them, somebody that hadn't been seen before. And because I needed somebody to take a bump for Fuji. So I go out there with the, with the flag waving at Lex and Lex don't know me from anybody. He just thinks I'm somebody that's there. He doesn't know anything. We never, we didn't even speak except to work out, you know, where I'm taking the bump for Fuji and what's going to happen from that point on. And long story short, do that, everything else. And I get to the back and Mark Rotundo is your agent. And Mike goes, I got an idea. We ought to work a thing out with you being Lex's protege because you're from Atlanta, right? Lex is from Atlanta. We ought to work a deal. You know, you're a young American, you know, good American boy, American male type guy without using American male, actually, but, you know, young and Lex is an American thing. Lex protege, this could work. And so that actually got me out of doing any other enhancement work, you know, while I was there. Um, still got paid, which is nice, sure. but didn't have to do anything. And then I got the call to be Bagwell's partner. And so long story short, I ended up being Bagwell's partner and not even looking into doing the thing for being Lexi's protege with WWF. So I show up at WCW, do the Nitro thing, that first Nitro. And again, nobody in Lexi is going to be there. Lex shows up there. So here's the scenario. If I would have stayed in USWA thinking I, you know, turned down WCW about being Lexi's protege to, to, to seek that possibility. Right. And that never happened. And oh, Lex that's right. Left. He, he left. Nitro, <laughs> I would have been stuck, you know, doing whatever if I would have turned that down. That's that's the the weird karma of it all. That's a weird story. Me going to WCW, not even thinking about doing the Lex thing, and then Lex shows up the first Nitro too. And to go back to that story, we we go to eat afterwards because you know it's an hour earlier. There was only one hour show. Me and Marcus did work with Dick and Buck for about a twenty minute match. To warm up the crowd, dark match. And we're in the restaurant eating. It's Sting, Lex, Marcus, Alex Wright, Johnny B. Bad, and myself. And I am looking at these guys going, What am I doing here? You know, <laughs> I do I'm do not belong with these guys, not at all. And and I'm just sitting there and eating my pasta and chicken slowly, trying to figure out why am I here. And Lex starts just berating me why are you eating so slow what is your problem if you're gonna be with us if you're gonna be around us you need to eat like and they're all chowned up they don't even speak they will eat and it's called i'm sitting there just going okay and lex is just ripping me you don't belong here no this ain't gonna work well you don't you know and i'm just going oh my gosh and when we all got up and left i'm i'm talking to marcus marcus is like yeah don't worry about it don't he'll warm up to you and Stinger actually walks up to it and goes, dude, don't worry about it. Like, he likes you. I'm like, what do you mean? 
he would not be ribbing you. He would not. Yeah, be he wouldn't talk to you if he didn't, he didn't like, like you. Exactly. And I, and I just went, <laughs> really, he goes, dude, he would not be ripping into you if he didn't like you. There's something about you. He goes, I don't know. I kind of like you too. You, you seem like a good kid. And that from that point on is when we kind of I started seeing him at the gym. You know, we started laughing, joking around here, joking around there. Started seeing it at all the nitros, and me and Marcus being partner. And then we started traveling a little bit together. You know, we get a car. You know, Singer would get his Lincoln Town car. I would drive. Mark being in front, or Singer being in front, Lex and Mark in the back, or somebody switching around. But I would always drive. And you know, that was the scenario. And then we started playing golf together, and we started being able to joke around together a bit more. I warmed up. I remember the first time I played golf with Lex. It was it was Lex. Larry Zabisco, Rick Steiner, and me at White Columns in Atlanta. And this is the first time I meet Rick Steiner. And so me and Rick are in a cart together, and Larry and Lex in their cart, and we're driving up, and, and Steiner goes, so, you and Marcus are tagging now. And I said, yeah. He goes, okay, cool. I said, okay, Rick. He goes, ah, you're friends with Lex. Lex likes you. Call me Rob. <laughs> I said, excuse me? He goes, call me Rob. I, I never did because, again, I never called, I always called Sting Sting. I called Lex Lex and sure. called Steve or Larry and Rick. I said, I, 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 I still call them Rick. Didn't matter. I just got to blow them off. And then I said, just be respectful to their personas. But um, it, it was just one of those things where just kind of, we just kind of gelled together. We started just hanging out. It was no big deal. Wasn't like, and then I was still getting ripped by Lex, still getting, you know, picked on about this or that. Being slow here, not doing this there, not pulling over in time, not getting the beer right, not getting, you know, this little thing about keeping the beer cold enough. And this little ribs, little, little jabs at me. And until the one time that I actually pissed off Sting more than anybody could ever think of, it was in, we were, remember we were, we were in Orlando and we did a, uh, for, the, uh, for the two weeks, we did a Nitro in Tampa. And we went and played golf that morning in Orlando. And we got cleaned up, got a bite to eat, and headed down to uh, Tampa. And I didn't know the Tampa. I didn't know how to get there. You know, again, this, I'm brand new to driving and stuff like that. Some places I was driving good, but I didn't know Orlando to Tampa. And so basically, after playing golf, I got in the back seat because I was thinking, I don't know where I'm going. It'd be easier for them to drive. It was my thought process. Right. Get in the back seat. Lex is in the back seat. <laughs> no, Marcus is in the back seat too. Lex is in the passenger side. Sting drives. Sting doesn't say a word the whole trip. You know, it's like, what, about an hour, hour and a half from Orlando to Tampa. Doesn't say a word. Pulls in parks, goes straight into the building. I can kind of clearly remember this in my mind. Go in the building, go to catering. Arn, of all people, walks up to me and says, Riggs, come here, now. I said, what? He goes, come here, pulls me on the quarter. What is your problem? What do you mean? Why did you make Sting drive here? And he ripped me a new one. Uh, and you're a kid, you're this, you're traveling with Lex and Sting and Bagwell. You're traveling with two of the top guys in the company. You drive. And he leveled it. And I guess Stinger went in there and was so furious. He, he confided in the arm how mad he was at me. And he had not said a word to me that whole day. And he just, I guess, really avoided me or whatever it was. But all I can remember is I got the keys and my mom said, I got to fix this. So I went and got the car, had the car pulled up to the back doors of the, the, the building to where they opened the doors, the trunk was open, let's <laughs> put their car and their bags in the car. And the nasties, you know, knobs wanted us to go to some piano bar. Well, it was have a few drinks and sing songs and all that stuff. And they gave us directions how to get there, but we got so lost, had no clue where we were going. And at this time, we were doing this little 
quip thing to each other. This is zippy. This is zany. This is wild. This is wacky. You know, we just wanted to say a little something over something that was going on. And, you know, we were kind of like trying to just, we were getting frustrated because we couldn't find a place. And some, I think Margaret goes, man, this is wild. It's wacky, zany. I just went, this is stupid. And it got <laughs> deathly quiet. And all of a sudden, Sting just let out a belly laugh. And goes, dude, that was a that was the biggest shoot I've ever heard, and you just made up for everything. He that melt that melted him right there because I shot this. You know, we were trying to be goofy, just off we couldn't find this place. And I just basically shot. So this is stupid, and and singing laughed, and it just made everything all better. But from that moment on. I don't think he ever drove a car again. Yeah, exactly. And just to be clear, so, just to be clear, Sting was a, a nice guy, uh, but that was the that was the way it worked back then because Sting had, I'm sure, had to drive when he broke in in uh, UWF in Louisiana. You know, five six hour rides. He had to drive because he was the rookie. You know, and then when he came to WCW, yeah, exactly. so that was the hierarchy. So it was, and and I know you weren't doing it on purpose. You were just thinking it'd be easier for somebody who knew the area because there was no. Uh, there was no Bingo. GPS yeah. back then, man. You had to you had to know where you were going. But that that was you know, and I learned the hard way too because uh, you know, from speaking of Arn, I rode you know broke in with Arn and rode up and down for years with Arn, and I never called him Marty. I always called him Arn, and I, he never drove. <laughs> and if I asked him to drive, he'd say hell no. Uh, that <laughs> you know, and then that's you know, but he was more. Uh, uh, as you know, with Arn, he was extremely entertaining. So uh, there was never a dull oh, moment. Yeah. And then we hooked up with uh, Charles Robinson, and then Danny the trainer. I don't know if you were around when he was there. And so I had three. We had three people to drive Arn. I remember Chuck Tashay the trainer. Yeah, Chuck. Name. Chuck didn't last very long. Uh, something about no. Augusta, Georgia, and and uh, tape, and the Steiner brothers, and a pencil. But uh, I'll leave I think it, it was a sharpie. A sharpie. Yeah, I'll leave it at that. But um, yeah. I, I don't. I I only remember that was Augusta because um, uh, my cousin still talks about it. My wife's cousin was down. Uh, we lived in Atlanta for uh, for a week from Canada, and I got got her to be the ring girl for the house show. And oh, so she always brings wow. it. That's how I remember it's Augusta. I don't even remember. I if I didn't uh, if I didn't you know I don't even remember half the places that that I went. Uh, amazing that you know. I actually. Um, when you said being a, the ring girl, I guess you meant by getting the robes and stuff like that for yeah. the guys' and jackets. When I was eight years old, living in Savannah, Georgia, me and my dad would go to Savannah Civic Center every other Sunday or every third Sunday. They would have the you know the Mid Atlantic Championship Wrestling NWA right. you know promoted um, show down there. And as an eight year old kid, one of my neighbors on the corner was a cop, and he would work the shows too. So he actually allowed me to get the ring robes. This is, I can assume, the first time I got the ring rubs and jackets for anybody um, that really had them at the ring that meant to anybody. It was Ric Flair and Greg Valentine. I got their robes. Cool. Here I am, eight-year-old kid, get Ric Flair and Greg Valentine's robes and carry them to the back. And I remember, remember it, we know if the robes good, kid, don't drop this robe. It's 10 grand. <laughs> you know, put your robe on me. And then they were wrestling Paul Jones and Ricky Steamboat. And I had to, you know, I got their stuff first, and then I came back and got their uh, Flares and Valentine's next, and then uh, about twenty years later, I'm wrestling Rick Flair in WCW, and you know, having a few beers after the night because of the stuff with Rick Flair. So th that's the the strange thing of the entire situation of my 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 bit as a wrestling fan as a kid growing up. I can say, yeah, I got Rick Flair's robes, and as an eight year old kid, an eight year old fan, 
And then 20 years later, I'm 20 years old, I'm wrestling player on, on Nitros. That's a cool story. Kind of a wild transition. Yeah, you know, I don't think I remember telling anybody that, but I did remember this is this will be really telling in one sense. Um, I played football at West Georgia, and it's a Vision 2 school, West Georgia College, and uh, it's in Carrollton, right outside of Atlanta. On some Sundays, um, we would hop in a car and drive to the Omni and watch the show and watch the matches. And I actually started going in the back door, acting like I was one of the wrestlers. I was a, you know, 215 pound football player, had a decent build to me. I'd walk in and nobody would say a word to me. And Klondike Bill was part of the ring crew back then. This was, you know, early nineties, 90, sure. 90, 91 ish. And that, that's, I, I, I don't think you were doing anything with him, but I was, um, I was a stooge. I actually, were you okay? But I actually, at the show, um, I got Sting's autograph, believe it or not, because I wanted to take it back to everybody at the, at the, call, at, the at school and say, look, here's Stinger, you know, I got his autograph, uh, uh, you know, that type of thing. Because everybody knew I was, I was a wrestling fan. I was going to the matches. And I got his autograph. And I actually told him that one time. He looked at me and says, don't ever tell that story to anybody. <laughs> I was, I was kind of just thinking the same thing. Uh, yeah, obviously, you didn't take his, you didn't take his advice. You've been the, you've been the only person I've told that to in the first little podcast that I've ever said that to anybody else since that point. And that was, I guess, well, I don't. It, <laughs> so I'd be like ninety six. So it was thirteen years later. The only time I ever told that story to anybody else was you. Thirteen years later. Well, we thank so. you. We thank you for sharing. Um, so at some point you, you had a little uh, uh, taste of Raven's flock and then you ended up leaving WCW. How did how did that come about? Did you decide to walk away? Did they decide to, to let, let you go? How did that come about? And, and, and what were well, the, I mean, the big the biggest part about that was when um, when Russo came in and started uh, doing all their their, their it's always TV goes back to like Russo, that. man. It does. It does go back to him. And I actually got a heat with Eric Bischoff, um, where Bischoff brought me on Twitter and doesn't speak to me anymore because of it. Um, and thinks I'm a, the biggest idiot and biggest goof in the world. He, he, he browbeats me on his 83 weeks or whatever you call that podcast he does. I listened to it a few times and he will not put me over for anything. I think he still thinks I'm a piece of trash or whatever in his mindset. And to me, it doesn't matter. I think it's kind of funny, but I, I screwed up in my, and one of the first interviews I did with um, Wrestling Inc., where I, I said uh, I put over Bischoff big time huge in the fact that he gave me um, a raise after my first 90 day thing. I was I worked for a few months under I was basically one after World Tag Team Champions making 600 bucks a week. I was sleeping on Glacier's couch when I was World Tag Team Champion, the orange crutch velvet couch that he had in his in his living room. Because I had nowhere else to stay at the time, I was just barely making any money, making six hundred bucks a week. Went into the next year for about the first three months, still just making six hundred bucks a week, and then he signed me to a one-year deal, making seventy-five grand a week or a month uh, yeah. or, or a year. Excuse yeah. me. Yeah, seventy-five grand a month. I, yeah, what did well, but um, but for a year. And so, and then the next year came in. I was still working without a contract for about a, you know three months because it didn't roll over. I guess they didn't have that in my thing. And Eric signed me to a three-year deal, making six figures um, with a pay raise every year, pretty much double my money every year. And um, uh, and I put over Eric Strong for, for giving me, you know, uh, a, a solid, you know, something like a, a foundation of a three-year contract, gave me a solid life, you know, to live. 
and put them over in that. But then, I, but I, I screwed up my my mentality thinking because I said, yeah. And then Eric ha- hired Russo, and <laughs> Eric hired Russo into the company. Um, you know, and Eric took that one bit of my mistake, did not put over the fact that I put him over for even the stability in my life with a three year deal with guaranteed money. Um, and it was a good payday, like I said, six figures. And so I just sat back and went and Eric hooked on the one thing that I, that I screwed up in, in the interview and said that moron was there and knew that I didn't hire him because I didn't hire him. That goes to show those rag sheets and everything else. And he just obliterated me on Twitter one day. And then I went back and said, Oh yeah, I forgot you got fired and replaced by an accountant, Bill Bush. So, yeah, I guess you're right. I was wrong on that. And I did put that in there, and then he blocked me. Wow. And never spoke to him from that point on. And that was around, I guess, 20 in 13, I guess, or 14 after I joined Twitter. So those are fi- those are fighting stuff. words. You're gonna you're gonna yeah, fir- well, you're gonna first yeah. you're gonna first blame him for Russo, and then you're gonna heal on yeah. him about B- Bill Bush and getting fired. Well, he healed on me for being a moron. I so kind of went back and forth. But, but the all, thing was, yeah, not, it goes back to Russo because Russo was doing these things, and he had me do a match with Marcus where we put over to that Marcus wasn't going to do the finish in the back, and he kicked out the crossbody, and you know all those they had that Kidman cam thing going on. I didn't like doing that stuff. And sit back, you know, I argue with him a bit. I don't want to do this. He goes, well, this is what we want you to do. If you want to do it, you can do it. If you don't, you can go home. We won't use you anymore. And I kind of in my mind, Marcus was kind of going, just go ahead and just, just get it with us, do this match. It can be, it won't make, it won't be remembered. It'll be blah, blah, blah. And long story short, you know, we had talked about, I talked with JJ about, you know, another one year deal and just the idea of it with a guaranteed paycheck. And a couple of weeks after that discussion, they called me back to the offices and said, well, we want we, we can't offer you a deal because um, we're going through some budgetary cuts, but we want to keep you on a, on a um, per match basis. I went, nah, no. I'm done. I don't want to be here for that. I'm going to finish up my deal here. And that was around, that had to be October, maybe, yeah, October of 99, um, I think is when I had that kind of conversation. And then, like, my last match was a Saturday night match with Benoit in November. And it was a thing where I worked team went on a Saturday night match. We had a hell of a nine, almost 10-minute minute match where Terry and Shane Douglas run in for the finish. They pile drive Benoit and everything else. And, but, you know, it, looked, we, it was such a great match, a great finish. And to me, um, I was just glad that was my last match there because then for about another six weeks, they didn't have me on TV or anything. That's where my mindset was like, okay, all I did at the time was remember that Eric was there. I only experienced maybe a month, three weeks of anything with, with Russo. So my whole mindset at the time was Eric was there. I didn't even think about working for Russo. Yeah, that's an so honest. That's that was definitely an, definitely an honest mistake, and but but the well, that's where I made the mistake of, the, of saying that Eric because yeah, so, my mindset was Eric was there for the longest point of time. But again, when that when that came about to me, I, I sat back and said, "There's just no need. I don't want to be here anymore." Everybody would talk about eggshells as it is because a lot of people were getting fired. Money was you know, and nobody was really happy. So I was kind of glad to get out of there, and. During my time off, bro, I was sitting at home a little bit, just collecting my little paycheck as normal. Uh, went to ECW, came into town, and they worked center stage. I went by and watched the show, you know, caught up with everybody, and talked to Heyman for a little bit, talked to Tommy Dreamer, and told them what was going on. They said, hey, you want to come in? 
I said, uh, sure. Be kind of cool. You know, and then I talked to that same night, um, talked to Heyman about money and everything else. And, and even ideas of what they kind of want to do with me. I was like, wow, okay, cool. So to make a real long story short, we waited for a couple of weeks to cut my last couple paychecks in WCW before they brought me in. So they couldn't mess with my money. You know, that uh, lawyer, what's her name? Diana Myers. Diane. Yeah, Myers. We did not want to mess with her and go, oh, you're with somebody else. You can stop your paychecks. Right, of you course. You know what I'm saying? And, and they would have. It was like, don't mess with your paychecks. We know who those people are, blah, blah, blah. I, I knew after having my talk with her, she goes, I had, to, I had to go sign some paperwork or something, you know, ending my deal, whatever it was. I can't remember the whole details of it, but I went in there and she says, just to let you know, you cannot use Scotty Riggs. If you use the Riggs name at all, we will sue you. I said, excuse me? Uh, so we came up with that on my own. Well, we promoted it for years. We've done this for years. We put it on merchandise. We've done this. We own that name. And whether, well, I don't think they actually did, but I wasn't going to, you know, pile on money to try to be sued or whatever for it. Sure. And, um, but yes, yeah, I remember, remember her going, if you use that name, we will sue you. We will sue whoever runs with you using that name. They were so, they were, okay, so, they were cool. so nice back then. You know, it was, to me, it was like, I'm just glad I was, left that that mentality, that, that positive energy of WCW. We got to ECW, and the funny thing was, Paul Heyman, after like the, the first thing we did with me and Rob going out there and doing our thing, remember he sat me down, and this is the first guy in a couple of years. I mean, you know, never did this with Eric, never did it with really Kevin Sullivan. Kevin would give me ideas of what we were going to do with him and Marcus, and then when uh, with the flot thing um, and building you know, uh, the match at the angle with Raven, Kevin Sullivan was, was sitting down and go, okay, I've talked to Scotty about this, and you know, Raven, this is what we kind of want to do. And then with the mirror thing, it was Kevin Nash that kind of sat me down and said, you know, we want you to do this. And Terry Taylor, I had ideas to do to, to keep the eye patch and maybe do like a snake twisting thing. And Terry shot that down and said, no, we don't want to do that. We want to turn you, you know, we're going to forget the eye patch thing and just, you know, uh, we want you to kind of be a narcissist type thing, figure something out, do with it. Okay, you know, I came up with all this stuff to do, and Terry shot down within one second, and, and me and Terry Terry never got along, but it was one of those things. But to go back to ECW real quick, Heyman sat me down at one of the first shows we did and said, here's a six-month plan I want to have, want to do with you. You and Rob was best friends for a while. I'm going to turn you against Rob. We're in a little angle with you and Rob. We've got this thing we're doing. We're having issues with Spike TV, which was CNN at the time. And we're building this little network thing. We'll make you part of the network. You know, we'll work our appeals with that. And then probably put you in Korea. And every little thing. I mean, he laid out like a six, eight-month plan of what he wanted to do with me. And actually put names and how he wanted to do stuff. And God's honest truth, it happened almost by the letter of what Paul Heyman said. Yeah, well, he had a game plan. He had He mapped out. With me coming in from being really, not really a huge personality or anything, but he put me in there and said, this is what we want to do with you, and mapped out a six-month plan, and it almost fell straight to a T. I was like, wow. That's the guy who knows his business. No, he does. That's why he's still uh, still a huge uh, influence in, in the number one company in the world. Uh, and, uh, and he's got a hell of a raw show going on. Yeah. Hey, uh, did you ever, speaking of Raw, did you ever, after WCW closed and the ECW thing finished up, I know you worked a little bit with Dusty and Turnbuckle Local uh, in Georgia. Did you ever get uh, any interest from WWE? 
we had I had one conversation with Jim Ross, and it was pretty much, um, we like you, you know, you work great, but you really don't have a persona that we had could could figure out for you, and so there's really we don't have all of interest in bringing you in at the moment to do anything with you. And we got so many other guys that we were bringing in that we uh, we kind of have ideas for. You would kind of get really lost in yourself when there'd be nothing for you. And so until maybe we can figure out something for you, just keep busy and we'll get in contact with you. That was pretty much the only thing we had. They liked my work rate, but it didn't have anything for me. So okay. we mentioned at the beginning that you walked away from the business really on your own terms. Tell me about that and why that happened and, and how you're able to mentally, uh, like I said, it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, the crowd could be an addiction. And, uh, even for little old me, you know, even, uh, you know, go out there every night in front of 10,000 people and, you know, good evening, fill in the blank city and you get that pop when that was gone. I missed it. Yeah. I ain't going to lie. I missed it. Well, dude, I mean, yeah, believe me, I missed it too, but it wasn't an easy transition out. I mean, long story short, also on an independent show, I fractured my left elbow Oh, geez. where I've had to have three elbow surgeries on it. It doesn't straighten out anymore. Mm. Um, I fractured the ulna bone where they had to put, uh, I think it was 16 screws, two steel plates, um, in there, I still have five screws in the elbow and they actually had to do a third tr- surgery where they had a transposition of nerve because, uh, the pain was still so bad in there because it was a lot of uh, pressure on the only nerve. So had a transposition that to try to alleviate a lot of the pain. But, um, and that took two years of my life basically to deal with that. And that pretty much is really what ended anything I was doing independent wise and anything that I could do. And that was in round 07. And there wasn't, I didn't have a whole lot of uh, interest in going to Impact either because I didn't think they were going to be around long enough. And then when they were hiring everybody, you know, from WCW at one point, there were all the top guys that were coming in. So I just never saw myself in that mix. And I just kind of, in one sense, just said, okay, I, I knew I wasn't a huge, you know, top personality main event guy. I was a great worker. I was a great hand, a good mechanic, as I like to say. Just being in the ring, I could work with anybody, have a hell of a match. Sure. And, you know, when when it comes to an end, sometimes you just go, okay, you know, part of it's due to injury from the elbow, but then part of it there was just, you know, I, I gotten too old for the business. I, I definitely miss the um, that rush of being in the crowd, being able to take the crowd on a roller coaster with what I'm doing in the ring whether I was working, you know, tag match with Marcus or against Marcus or against Raven or against, uh, you know, Benoit, DDP, or even ACW, I was working RVD or Dreamer or tagging with Steve Carino. Um, we always, always, always paired up with guys who knew how to um, really work the crowd, really get the crowd going up and down with you. A lot of veteran guys. And then working for Dusty, uh, God, was so cool working for Dusty because he put me in a six-month program with Barry Windham for his you know, heavyweight title. So I got to work with Barry Windham two, three nights a week, having so much fun with him. And then pretty much a three-month deal with uh, Dustin wow. where Dustin went back to being gold dust. So for nine months, Six to eight months, I was working with Barry Windham and, and Dustin Rhodes. So I was having a blast doing that before I fractured my elbow. But, um, you know, so I was always blessed to be able to work with some of the top guys and have great matches with them. So then I could still look back and go, I might not be working anymore, but, man, 
I got some great memories that some guys just don't aren't allowed to have. Absolutely, absolutely. And there's, you know, there's a lot to be, there's a lot to be said about walking away on your own, you know, whether it was injury or not. The fact, you know, there's a lot of people that, that keep trying to make it back, uh, you know. Uh, So, so now we get to the ellipsis, which is the word of the day. Uh, So what what are you up to? Uh, What are you doing? Are you happy? Uh, Let the fans know what, uh, whatever happened to Scotty Riggs. Life is good. I'm just pretty much retired right now. Um, oh, that doesn't suck. Investment system things. No, I mean, hey, I'm I'm not living some big, you know, John Cena lavish superstar mega mansion lifestyle. Just got a nice, you know, comfy, cozy thing. Living on the beach. Life is good. Um, enjoying being a Twitter, you know, celebrity with my blue check mark. <laughs> uh, get to relive memories there. Get to post, you know, get to get the anger from putting the American males tune on there you know, write the words and get, get, you know, response from people. Damn, I got that head stuck in my song all day now. Thanks a lot. F you. <laughs> I'll have a little fun with that. It does stick um, in your head. Yeah. You know, that, that that's, again, that's the one thing, even with, with people who just hear it for the first time and go, oh my God, I can't get that song out of my head. That's the coolest thing about it. You know, it gets you eat and you get whatever, but it stays there and it can't, and they'll be there for days. And I love it because well, <laughs> it's, it's fun. You know, it's, it's, it's the, the, the one cool thing. Um, at least, uh, working with Marcus was, you know, we were baby faces and then when Marcus turned, get to work with him, it was so cool to see Marcus become buff because Marcus needed that. He knew that good run. He'd been a good guy for so long. He needed to be a heel. He needed to be a villain. And he did it well. He, you know, well, he, it was, it was, only it was, it was I, his real life I character. Yeah, well, the only criticism I ever gave him said, dude, there are sometimes you play that your your persona too much during a match. Like I did this podcast not too long ago and told him during our strap match, I got mad at him. I said, dude, you were going to the camera so much during our match when I watched it back. I said, that was kind of irritating. He went, really? I said, yeah, it was. He goes, but the thing was, and I said, it was irritating, but it wasn't bad to a point because um, we did a two-week tour of Japan right after, you know, right after that, NWA sold out pay-per-view. Um, and see the rappers, we flew me, him, Norton, and Jericho flew from there to Chicago, Chicago to Tokyo for two weeks. Actually, it was three weeks. I'm sorry. And the first two weeks over there, they had me and Marcus tag a couple times, doing a few things. And then they basically had him go NWO from that point on because I think they were like a week behind. Um, You're back to Memphis again. America. Exactly, pretty much, you know. <laughs> and so they basically had him go NWO and do NWO stuff for the last two weeks of the tour. And which is kind of cool, is they had me talking with Jericho all the time. And, and for me being a first time tour in Japan, getting Russell Liger and Samurai and uh, Tenzan and some of those guys, and not knowing everything tremendously well over there, transition-wise and stuff like that, having Jericho, you know, probably do this, do that, tell me do this, do that, and get better at it was, was really cool. But um, I saw Marcus do buff over there, and normally character stuff does not get over in Japan. They want you work rate. They want you strong style. They sure. want you, you know, fighting back. And the first time Marcus um, was supposed to do this, this with this guy, Dwork Sumo, and he did those little sumo slaps, you know, they, they push you off, push you off. Yeah. Marcus said those were a shoot. They look like their lives all get out. He goes, but he was knocking the crap out of me. And he got back to a corner, and the guy and the ref broke up. Marcus was happy, went, hey, Domo. <laughs> and, you know, the crowd went, 
Oh. <laughs> and when you, when you get that from the crowd of Japan, you got something. And he just kept doing little American things with his buff character over there, and it got over, like Rover in Japan. And so when he came back to America, I saw it work over there, so I knew as irritating as it was to be his opponent in the ring, and he'd do something to you, and he'd walk away from you, and leave you there, and go to the camera, and, and cut a pro in the camera, then come back to you, and saunter over to you, and do something, and you're sitting back going, dude, don't do that. But I knew it worked. You know, and one sense I saw working in Japan, which he, it normally doesn't. So I figured, well, I'm not going to be working him long. I wish he would have worked, because I had dropped an idea about, you know, when he turned on me, and you were trying to establish me a bit of a singles, put the like, TV title on me and, you know, let me upset somebody for a TV title. I have, have a few defensive with that. And then Marcus go, you know, I want him because I want that TV title. Not just, you know, you know, I want to fight Marcus. Marcus wants to fight me because we're ex-partners. This is kind of a goofy story. You think about it, but it was what they gave us to do at the time. Yeah. Because um, he went NWO. And so we're fighting over NWO and him turning on me and stuff like that. But they would have put TV title on me. And I ran this, I think it was by Terry Taylor. And I said, well, let's do this. And we can use the TV belt to elevate me to where I mean something. So when he beats me, it's a 10 W pay-per-view. He can maybe beat me for the TV dollars like that. So you put the title on him and give him a good run for the TV belt and establish him as a singles, the buff character. And then we went to Japan for three weeks, came back and had the uncensored pay-per-view. So we had one week to do, to set up a strap match of all things, you know, out of nowhere. Okay. So uncensored just put two good looking guys in a strap match. Neither one have been in before. It's what to beat the crap out of each other. And so we had one week set where Marcus just for no reason comes and runs out to the ring and starts with me with a belt. Does it make sense? No, but it sets up the strap match. And then after the strap match, that was basically it. He beat me twice and really had no meaning kind of left me kind of going, well, okay, that was cool. <laughs> what would you do next? Hey, I got and my Marcus, I got my three year contract. Yeah, well, and Marcus went okay. That was cool. We do next with him. And next thing you know, he's tagged with uh, Scott Norton, who's basically just religious. So his singles run that we both were working towards, nothing really came of it. Like okay, he's NWO now. He's buff. He's got a great character, but we already put him back into a tag gimmick. Okay, it, it, that was part of the booking that really didn't make sense back then. Some of it did. Some of it didn't. We weren't part of the long term plan in one sense. At least I know I wasn't. So in other sense, I had great times, great things got elevated a certain, to a certain level that our memories that I'll never lose. You know, I can, I can say I had a strap match with Marcus on the pay-per-view. Not a lot of guys can say they had strap matches anymore. Um, I had a cage match with, with uh, Dustin for, his, for, for Dusty for his dad where he tore the house down. We were both bleeding so bad. Uh, Dusty had um, Daphne, you know, with me. And she was like my manager there, and she's my partner in crime. And she was actually in tears because me and me and Dustin were both bleeding so bad. She goes, "I've never seen you bleed before," and she was in tears in the back, going, "You just look so bad." <laughs> but it was cool when you can work when you get your own person that is so into you right there. Sure. And she's so cool. And, yeah, she is. You know, we just worked so well together. And just the fact that that showed she cared for me and Dustin was good. I've never been so close to seeing two guys bleeding so bad. But, um, but yeah, it was, you know, just tremendous memories, you know, awesome. I mean, one of my first matches that ever got me over with Dusty was of all places in 94, working with Steve, uh, Steve Austin, he was stunning Steve and he was Carl Parker. Right. Uh, they just put up him and Pillman 
And they were supposed to have Sam Houston in a match against uh, Steve for like, I think it was nine minutes or 11 minutes, something like that. And Sam Houston didn't get to the show. So Jody Hamilton put me in there. Then they got a call that Sam was on his way. So I was out. Then they put, then, then they've got a call. He wasn't going to make it. So they put me back in. And all I can remember is Austin walked up to me. Hey kid, can you work your headlock? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Kid, can you work the elbow? Yeah. Kid, can you work the arm? Yeah. Kid, can you work the leg? Yeah. Okay, we're going to do that out there. That's all he told me. He read me the whole time. <laughs> Nick Patrick was the ref. We went out there and did a nine-minute match. And Steve, again, this is 94. I'm started in 90, February of 92. This has got to be, I'm saying, maybe February of 94 because it's still real young there. Maybe it was 93. But sometime at that point, I've only been two years in the business. Steve made me look like a 10-year vet again. Just amazing how some of these guys can take somebody with a little bit of talent and make us look good. And I can still remember Dusty coming up to me after the show going, baby, I'll tell you what, I knew the finish for the match, but you and Steve had me going, baby. <laughs> I thought maybe you might make the upset. You know, as a horrible Dusty. but mm. um, uh, You do better than but, me. I can't do it, Dusty. I'm the only person the, in the business. The, uh, but the thing is, you know, Dusty was put over, and I can remember Nick Patrick going, leaning over going, I'm blowing up sky high. <laughs> you just need to go. I'm blowing up sky high, and, and Nick going, good. Kid, catch your breath. You did good. I said, have a match. You know, he's leaning over to check on me, and just talking to me as casually as it is night and day. Just say, hey, kid. You know, I'm going, <laughs> yeah, yeah, thank you. Yeah, can't breathe. <laughs> and, and, and also, like, dude, hell of a match, kid, you know? So there's certain memories from the beginning of, of the stuff we did to the last stuff I did, you know, this memories that they're, they're good times, you know, and, and, and that's some of the stuff that can't get taken away from you. Absolutely. I'm kind of glad I'm not in the, in the, in the era there is now because, you know, there's, there's no belief in what we do. They're doing what they do anymore. There's no art in suspending people's disbelief anymore. And, I'm kind of glad I'm just a fan of some stuff now because I can be a fan of what I want to be a fan of. And then when there's crap out there, then I go, what is that? I can turn the channel and don't have to put it over. I can bury it if I want, you know, exactly. there's stuff out there that is great. Like Bray Wyatt doing the fiend right now. That is awesome. What that guy is doing. And then there's just some stuff that I go, wow. You know, why are they doing that? I can't really figure anything off my, off my head that I can bury right now because I don't want to in one sense. But it's just stuff out there. You just go, and when, when you got the wrestlers on Twitter going, I'm not a wrestler. I'm a performance artist. Oh, don't get me started. I'm, I'm griping a bit now, you know, to you, and I appreciate you listening to me. But, man, it, when you go from the, the business is – the business and the art, the, the craft is making people suspend their disbelief, you know, and that's what put asses in the seats. Now they say, hey, what we do is not real, but come, you know, pay your hard-earned money just so you can watch me do a bunch of uh, crazy stuff and know that we really don't hate each other. Don't believe what we do. Just come be entertained by us. It's crazy, man. Hey, Ooh, you know, when I first yeah. when I first reached out to you to do this a little while ago, you were like, I got no stories to tell. Well, I, I beg to differ. You just told about 90 minutes of great stuff. And, you know, <laughs> with so many with so many bad endings in, in this business, you know, guys not, uh, not doing well or or not living long, um, 
it, it's great to see that you're doing well. You're retired and um, and in a good place. You're a nice guy. You're one of the good ones. Hey, uh, real quick before we go, tell everybody where they could find you if they don't already uh, uh, subscribe to your blue check Twitter that you uh, you like so much. Oh yeah, the old real Scotty Riggs. You know, is my Twitter, and it's pretty much. I, I got an Instagram thing, but I really don't do anything with it. I just really keep up with a few people because sometimes it's it's good to have Instagram so when you take it a big a big solid morning poop, you can look at the pictures that people are doing and get a laugh at it and stuff like that. So that's where I get my instead of taking a magazine to read and look at pictures or I'm taking my morning poop, I look at my Instagram. But um Now we know the answer. I Whatever just, happened to Scotty Riggs, he poops in the morning while 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 looking at Instagram. There you go. I never thought but that yeah, would be the yeah. answer. But yeah, um, people at least know that the real Scotty Riggs is real Scotty Riggs because that blue check mark. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm I'm still trying for one. Hey, thank you so much. Great stuff, and um, maybe we could uh, have you on down the road again. And we could just tell Luger stories the whole day. But uh, uh, for real, well, yeah. man, again, it was good to catch up with you for sure. And like I started off with, it, when I heard you say Scotty Riggs, I wanted to hear the American males from you, but you know. <laughs> It just fit so well, dude, to be honest with you. I just I just got a big grin on my face. It's just hearing your voice and you said Scotty Riggs. It just would it would have been perfect for you to do that. That was just so much fun that we had just listening to you do the intros and stuff like that. Well uh, maybe I could see times, maybe I could see if uh if somebody if the producer could take it off of uh YouTube and play a little snippet of it for you. I'll let you know when I send you when I send you the link uh, when it drops. I'll let you know. Hey, thanks so much, Scotty man. Glad you're doing well, and uh, hopefully see you down the road. But uh, but but uh, thanks for the time. Really appreciate it. Great stories. All right, David. Take care of yourself, Thank man. You. Want to thank Scotty Riggs. Great stuff. Great stories. And uh, now we know he poops in the morning while he watches Instagram. And so you never know what you're going to find out when you tune into. City Ringside, each and every week, it drops on Monday. If you don't subscribe, be sure to do so. If you like what you hear and you subscribe, tell your friends and neighbors, tell your, spread the word on Twitter at David Penzer, and um, we thank you for your support here on Radio Influence, and look forward to continue, especially as the Wednesday Night Wars heat up next week. We hope to talk to Dave Meltzer and get a full, uh, full review of how the Wednesday Night Wars went, how the shows went, some behind-the-scenes info, and uh, what the ratings were, which is really the most important thing at the end of the day. So until next time, ladies and gentlemen, I'm David Penzer, still sitting ringside. Thank you so much. Follow David Penzer on Twitter at David Penzer. Also make sure to follow the show on Twitter at Penzer Ringside. You've been sitting ringside with David Penzer on Radio Influence. I'm Jerry Petock, CEO of Radio Influence. I just wanted to take a quick moment to say thank you for downloading and subscribing to this podcast. There are a lot of people behind the scenes here at Radio Influence that work hard to keep you entertained day in and day out. If you'd like to get involved and advertise on this program, or you have some show ideas that you'd like to see us add to the Radio Influence family, please email us at contact at radioinfluence.com. We all have crazy schedules, so the fact that you took time out of your busy day to let us entertain you for a while means a lot. Without you, the listeners, we wouldn't exist, so thank you again for downloading and subscribing to this show. Don't forget to check out RadioInfluence.com to see what other shows we also have to offer. All of Radio Influence's programming can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, 
TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and of course, RadioInfluence.com. 